The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Listening to the secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series Doctor Who, and today we're discussing the last of the 60th anniversary specials featuring the 14th Doctor, The Giggle. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey, how's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to like the secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and leave us comments wherever you find us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of hearing from you, we have some great listener feedback to share with you at the end of this episode, so be sure to stick around for that. And finally, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called PlayStation Portable, an opportunity for daily prayer. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com PSP. So, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of The Giggle? This week, we open in Soho in 1925, where a man buys a puppet known as Stooky Bill from a man who will be revealed as the toy maker. Stooky Bill was the puppet featured in the very first television broadcast image ever, and it turns out that Stooky Bill's giggle has somehow been implanted in every screen made since then. In 2023, a Korean satellite has been added to the global communications network, and it allows Stooky Bill's giggle to start driving everyone on Earth crazy, making them convinced that they're always right, leading to innumerable personal conflicts, which is what the Doctor and Donna saw at the end of last week's episode. The Doctor gets in touch with Unit, where former companion Melanie Bush is now working and authorizes Unit to shoot down the satellite, while he and Donna go back to 1925 and have a terrifying encounter with the interdimensional Toymaker. The Doctor challenges the Toymaker to a simple card game, which the Toymaker immediately wins. But since the Doctor won their first game back in the first Doctor's time, they must now settle by playing the best of three. And the Toymaker wants to play the third game in 2023. The Doctor offers to leave Earth with the Toymaker and play infinite games with him among the stars forever if he'll leave Earth alone, but the Toymaker has become fascinated with Earth and its game culture. He has no plans to leave anytime soon. And he decides he'll play the third game against the next Doctor, so he unexpectedly skewers the 14th Doctor with the laser beam forcing him to regenerate. But it feels different this time, and the Doctor splits in two, the first bi-generation. The 14th and 15th Doctors then challenge the Toymaker to a game together, forcing him to play them both. They then play a high-stakes game of catch with a ball high atop the unit tower, and the Toymaker eventually fails to catch the ball, which sails over the side of the platform they're on. That's two out of three, and the 14th Doctor says his prize is to banish the Toymaker from reality forever. But as he's going, the Toymaker says his legions will be coming. In the aftermath, the Doctors visit the TARDIS and try to figure out what's going to happen now. Donna and the 15th Doctor tell 14 that he's clearly running on fumes. He's never stopped running since he defeated the Toymaker as the first Doctor. The 15th Doctor says 14 needs a break, and Donna tells him that this is the reason his face came back and he sought her out, because he was looking for a way to come home. 
But 14 says he can't leave the TARDIS, so 15 declares that his prize for winning the game with the toy maker is a new TARDIS, and he causes the TARDIS to buy Generate by hitting it with a big clown hammer. He then says his goodbyes and flies off to new adventures, where the 14th Doctor begins to take a... And the 14th Doctor begins to take a long and well-deserved break from saving the universe with Donna and her family. The end. All right. Overall impressions of this one. Father Corey, we'll start with you. This was fun. A lot of this was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked, really liked Neil Patrick Harris as the toy maker. He did a great job. There are a lot of great callbacks, even going all the way back to the original Celestial Toymaker episode. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, of course, you know, good action adventure. Um, Mel- Melanie Bush comes back and it was great to see her. Uh, it was, I really enjoyed it until we get to the regeneration part. And we're going to talk probably at length about what we thought about that. So we'll, we'll hold on that. But I, I, most of this episode, I really, really enjoyed. It was a lot of fun. Jimmy, how about you? I enjoyed it. Um, For once, it felt like this was, you know, what the 60th anniversaries need to be. Um, I'd commented the previous two episodes felt like decent episodes, but nothing overly special. This one really hit the ground running. This one was intense. Um, Neil Patrick Harris was very effectively creepy as the toy maker. There was lots of interweaving to things from Doctor Who history which, you know, made it more of an anniversary special. And uh, and I enjoyed it overall. I thought it was a big step up. Uh, I guess we're all in agreement because, yeah, I really enjoyed the, the, the majority of the episode. I felt like Neil Patrick Harris was a great toy maker. He was appropriately over the top, which he, he can be. And uh, and, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me you get I got Joker vibes like the Batman's Joker vibes from him or the Riddler, you know, one of those supervillains of a from a you know superhero comic book so I, I got real vibes of that from him and it was uh suitably chaotic and crazy so fun like that um lots of and, I, and i've seen him play villains before yeah um like he was the villain in dr horrible sing-along blog he was dr horrible <laughs> which yep. is fun and yep. he was the villain or one of the villains in gone girl oh you're right yeah that's mm-hmm. I, that, that one. I, I forgot about that one um there was Plenty of running in corridors, literally. <laughs> but yeah. I, I felt like that section, it could have gone longer. They actually, they didn't do a whole lot in there. They had like mm-hmm. three stops. We'll get, we'll talk about that in detail, I think. But um, there was like three stops in that corridor and then boom, we were done moving on to the next thing. It was fine. There was a lot to do in the, in as there always is in an anniversary special that also has a regeneration in it. Uh, so there was a lot to get, to get done. Um, regenerate and that was one of the complaints i heard was oh that wrapped up too quickly um but you know we had a whole regeneration stuff to deal with so you know maybe you know i think that's the way it is always with the regeneration story is the villain part gets you know the 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 mission of the week if you will gets short shrift because we have to tack a regeneration on there so i don't think that was as big a deal for me so let's talk about the uh, the by generation in the room, <laughs> the, hmm. the elephant in the room. Um, this was unique and different and unlike anything's ever been done before. And Jimmy, you had hinted last week that mm-hmm. uh, you had a potential spoiler, which turned out to be true, uh, related to the by generation. Could you recap what happened with that? 
Yeah. So last week I didn't mention on the show what the spoiler was. I didn't want to spoil you two or the audience for it. But a number of months ago, a purported leak came out about the specials. And this is one of many purported leaks. And normally these leaks are just people abusing themselves on the internet. They're not, they don't contain any actual data. And this leak said that the doctor was going to buy generate and split in two. And I, and a lot of other people thought, eh, you know, uh, unlikely to happen. I'll believe it when I see it. But then the first two specials came out and they contained information that was also in that same leak. And so it's like, okay, um, it's looking like the doctor may buy generate, which he then turned out to do. Um, also, I cross-connected that to a remark that Russell T. Davies had made that indicated tales of the TARDIS was going to be more important in the future. And I thought, well, if the doctor by generates, that could explain a line that Sylvester McCoy's doctor has when in, in Tales of the TARDIS, when Ace notes that he's gotten old and he says, well, timelines are like that. And some of them I just keep getting older. And so Russell T. Davies is now in a commentary that's on iPlayer um, for uh, the giggle has said that the way he interprets this is when the bi-generation happened, it didn't affect just the 14th and 15th doctor. It affected every doctor. And this was part of the gift or prize of the, uh, of, of the toy maker um, that he was forced to bestow. So he said, you know, um, the, uh, Sylvester McCoy woke up in a, in a, in a cabinet in San Francisco you know, and uh, John Pertwee woke up on the floor of unit headquarters after the fourth doctor flew off and all the other doctors um, ended up waking up and finding a TARDIS and continuing their adventures in some way in what Russell T. Davies is now calling the Doctorverse. And he sees this as a way of enabling things to happen in the future where you can have multi-doctor stories or stories where which are focused on an individual doctor without having to jump through hoops to explain why they look older than they were when they were on the show. He says the show still follows the current doctor, whoever the new doctor is, but these other doctors in his mind are still out there now. And so um, that can open up new storytelling possibilities without having to worry about why do they look so much older than they used to and things like that. Yeah, I, I watched the iPlayer uh, commentary he made. And one of the things that, that uh, Davies said was that today, as opposed to an audience in the 60s, today we're very used to multiverses. You know, we have the Spider-Verse, mm -hmm. we have Miles Morales and Peter Parker and that sort of thing. And if we'd had this, you know, the audience acceptance of such an idea back in the 60s, they might have done this from the beginning as a way to continue the doctor when an actor retires. Um, maybe. 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 I yeah. Color me skeptical on that. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not a fan of this idea. I, I, I think this is, you know, Timeless Child was controversial, but it could still fit kind of within the understanding of the doctor that this is a person who's lived through many lifetimes and the idea that he's had many more lifetimes than he even remembers. Okay, you know, we, we can we can play with that. This idea of all of a sudden now you have what? Well, 15 
doctors, (laughs) you know, not counting the timeless child doctors, because I'm going to assume that it goes all the way back there, which admittedly, that also means we can get Dr. Ruth back. Yeah, the fugitive doctor, which would be a good thing. The war doctor. Yeah, we get all those. Yep. You know, and it's just like, um, can we not? You know, okay, you know this, and uh, the idea of by generation, I don't mind. I, I kind of, I kind of like this idea that there might be a time when the best way to regenerate is just to split the person. In, in fact, I, I I wanted to comment on that because we should really separate the concept of by generation, which is canonical and on camera, mm-hmm. from this doctor verse idea right sure um when it comes to the bi-generation i don't have any problem with uh, with doctor who splitting in two um in fact it's nice to see some variation in what happens because in the classic period how regeneration happened was not this set stable thing mm-hmm. um you know uh like for example the most unusual case of it is when the fourth doctor regenerates and this watcher shows up and he's like a future version sort of of the doctor that then merges into him become to become the fifth doctor and okay that's weird and that's interesting and and then in in new who regeneration became very stable it was a well understood process. Nothing creative was really happening with it. They just blow up, usually destroying the TARDIS, and and that's it. Um, but this is this splitting in two thing is the most creative thing they've done with regeneration in New Who, mm-hmm. and and frankly since the since the first regeneration and the fourth Doctor's regeneration. Also, they although I I don't know how many people have noticed it, there's even a precedent for this. Because if you go back to the regeneration of the ninth into the tenth doctor, um, in the Christmas invasion, he gets his hand cut off and regenerates mm-hmm. a new hand. So he partially splits there. This is this is just a further splitting. And then the, the, the that hand becomes the Metacritus doctor that yep. goes with Rose. Yeah. Um you know, and I was thinking too. You know, you mentioned the the regeneration from the third to fourth doctors. Well, does that mean okay? So the fourth doctor split off. Did the third doctor still die from the regeneration? And then uh, mm-hmm. with uh, the fifth doctor, he was poisoned. Did he still die from the poison? Even though the sixth doctor split off, you know, and it's, it's yes. questions like that. You know, and, and again, like you said, Jimmy, that's not canonical. That's Russell T Davies amping so up the, his his <laughs> yeah. his story, and. I'm sure he'll try to figure out some way to bring one of the classic doctors in to make that canonical. But for now, at least because the the story they've always explained, at least going back to the fifth doctor, they look older because they're out of their timeline. Right. And that's kind of how they've, they've kind of explained it. I think that's even kind of been made canonical eventually, but because they're out of their timeline, it affects how they appear. Right. But right. Actually, you know, it was time crash. It was time crash where that was explicitly mentioned. Yeah. yeah. That's where it was explicitly mentioned because uh, uh, the 10th doctor makes fun of the fifth doctor, you know, about letting himself go. And it was because of being out of his timeline that he looked, looked so old and fat. So I just, I, I'm not a fan of the idea though. I, I'm, I'm hoping Russell T Davies doesn't push this too far, but again, for the, this one, one by, by regeneration was pretty cool. Yeah. I agree. The bi-generation 
is fine for me. I can, I can, I can accept it. It's kind of fun to have the new doctor and the old doctor running around to solve the current crisis and then maybe have the old doctor do whatever, you know, go away. But and, and that was part of what inspired it for Russell T. Davies. He noted that in regeneration stories, they all tend to be sad and it's this big tragedy. And he wanted one that was happy for once. And he, he liked the idea of the new doctor and the next or the current doctor and the next doctor having an adventure together, which is something he previously toyed with in The Next Doctor, where uh, yeah. the 10th Doctor met Jackson Lake, who turned out not to actually be the next mm. doctor. I always said he should do that for real. Yeah. You know, um, and this is close to doing it for real. Mm. Yep. So but as far as the, you know, having other doctors, you know, banging around, I mean, they've always been there. Right. I mean, the doctor travels mm-hmm. through time I and mean, he yeah. can cross his own timeline and he mm-hmm. has many times. Uh, but the idea that there's a doctor in 2023 hanging out in, a, you know, somebody's garden in London, you know, Donna's garden in London to just drag out at any moment. I don't I wonder from a storytelling perspective, does that um, does that take away from you know if you could always get your favorite doctor back does it take away from the necessity to just accept the new doctor i don't know i don't think so um it it, what thinking of it because they they don't have the budget to constantly (laughs) bring back popular doctors yeah um so we're always going to have to accept the new doctor as viewers what it does do from a um writing perspective is raise questions about well if the 10th ish doctor if the 14th doctor is living in chiltenham or wherever um what happens the next time there's a major crisis on earth why doesn't he Mm -hmm. get involved now they don't really have to answer that question but it's one that can complicate things a little bit from a writing perspective. Yeah. Now, one thing, you know, if, if they are talk, if Russell T Davies is talking about a multiverse, well, then you can use the argument. Well, that split off, you know, that doctor is split off in his own multiverse and, and multi-doctor stories are when the two multiverses collide and that doctor comes through. See, I would have liked that the multiverse idea where the 15th, the 14th doctor the timelines have split like because that's literally what sp- the Spider-Verse is, that there yeah. are there are multiple universes and there are separate universes. And I'd be fine with that. And this is something that I think Russell T. Davies either hasn't fully thought through or hasn't articulated well, because if all he's saying is there are other timelines now that these other like old seven is not in the same universe as Shooty Gat was 15. But right. is in an alternate timeline. Who cares? Right. You know, it's not like we've got multiple extended doctors running around the same timeline. If they're literally off in other timelines, then that's just quantum immortality. That's that's something that's been um, thought about for a long time. You know, uh, quantum immortality is the idea that every time a, an event happens, the universe splits. And in some of those splits, you die. And in other splits, you survive. And you are, and hypothetically, there's a, there could be a timeline where you just continue surviving through all the splits. Nothing manages to kill you in mm-hmm. that timeline. Mm-hmm. And um and so if there's a timeline where John Pertwee dies on the floor of unit lab and then regenerates back into John Pertwee, okay, fine. That's the John Pertwee quantum immortality timeline, but it's not the timeline the show is following. Right. I mean, 
we've sort of established the multiverse idea that, well, at least fans, some fans have accepted it with the whole Peter Cushing movies. You know, the idea that mm -hmm. those movies made of Peter Cushing as the doctor where he was doing some of the same adventures that were slightly different. I mean, obviously, it's, that's that's a headcanon thing for fans. You know, I read and, and I accept Peter Cushing's doctor is just an alternate for alternate universe doctor. Mm -hmm. um, but I re I just read a th I read that Peter Cushing interpreted a, a, his doctor. Apparently, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I read. But he in, and this is before Patrick Troughton becomes the doctor, mm -hmm. you know, because of when these movies were made, mm -hmm. he interpreted his doctor as a future version of the doctor where one of his enemies had kidnapped him, changed his appearance and blanked his memory and was forcing him to relive his early adventures. Oh, wow. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Peter Cushing is. A, yeah. yeah the, I, I, by the way, watch the uh, Rift Tracks take on the, the mm -hmm. Peter Cushing movies. They're, they're great. There's one of them where he's, they're talking about something being canonical and they say it's as canonical as this movie. <laughs> there's there's a great bit in space helmet for a cow the two volume comedic history of doctor who where they talk about uh fan debates about what is canon and 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 then they note that in uh the very first christmas episode the fourth doctor breaks the the first doctor breaks the fourth wall talks to the audience and wishes them a merry christmas and then the narrator of the book says, yes, but are we canon? Asked the fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Are we canon? <laughs> so, uh, that I so I, I want to kind of move on. We spent a lot of time talking about the bi-generation, which is a big deal. Uh, but I want to get your impression also of the 15th Doctor, Shudigatwa, as our first experience of him. Now, again, always with the, the, uh, when they first regenerate, they're kind of finding themselves out and we won't really get a sense of them until the next story perhaps. Uh, but what did you think of Shudigatwa as the 15th doctor? Kind of an anti Capaldi. He's kind of an, you know, Capaldi yeah. doesn't hug. He's very, you know, it's very gruff, at least at the beginning, you know, they've kind of met, they mailed him out throughout. Very his, not Scottish. <laughs> very, very not Scottish. I mean, cause you know, Capaldi, you know, despite the fact Shudigatwa is legally a Scotsman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's, he was very just the exact opposite, you know, very outgoing and almost bubbly, you know, yeah. in his the way he was running around uh, emotions very close to the surface, you know, kind of Matt Smith like in yeah. that aspect. Um, but, to, you know, the fact that, again, he was more huggy made me go that he's he's the anti Capaldi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, although he uh, needs to visit the TARDIS the, uh, the wardrobe yeah they did yeah. they did split the clothes between them i'm very glad that there was the appropriate distribution of clothing yeah. <laughs> for, for 14th doctor I had to go commando uh jimmy what did you think of the 15th doctor well um i i like the fact that he was happy and ebullient and energetic um i i like the fact he was emotionally supportive of 15 um you know, he had some mannerisms I'm not sure about, but I need to see him in a full adventure by himself. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I'm kind of I I can't really. I, my first impression is he may work, but it's not like it was for me with Matt Smith. Matt mm -hmm. Smith, based on the preview clip 
that they had shown of him, it's like, I don't think this is going to work. And then as soon as he popped out of the TARDIS and started interacting with Amy Pond, it's like instantly, oh, no, he's the doctor. This works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It it wasn't that clear for me with Shudigawa. Um, so I need to see what his I need to see him on his own mm. uh, in order to make a judgment about it. OK. All right. Yeah. And I, I, I had mostly positive thoughts about th- this story and him in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, but like you, Jimmy, I think I, I agree. I want to see him in the Christmas special and on his own and what's it going to be like acquiring his companion, um, having an adventure on his own. Uh, that'll really be the test of uh, how does he work as the doctor and how do they write him as the doctor? That's the really uh, interesting. Cause that was the problem with the Jody Whitaker is um, she, I, theoretically, I think she could have been a good doctor. I think they wrote the, that doctor poorly. And yeah, uh, right. And so the, a, big, a big test will be how do they write the 15th doctor? And, and we know Russell T. Davies is a good showrunner. He mm-hmm. knows how to run a show. He knows how to write. He's, you know, because uh, this was this story. The giggle was a Russell T. Davies story and it was very well written, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that shouldn't be an issue. Um, we'll see what else kind of comes with it, too, though. Right. But, Right. Yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the uh, I, I want to come back here at the end and we'll talk about our overall take on the 60th anniversary specials. I, I do want to mention that. But let's talk about this story itself uh, and the the plot, which is, you know, the, and the plot basis, which is, is the invention of TV by the Scotsman John Logie Baird in 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't aware that this was. I guess I wasn't aware of John Logie Baird, but this mm-hmm. essentially, apart from these supernatural science fiction events, um, this was essentially what what happened, right? The he he the first transmission was of a ventriloquist dummy that he placed in front of the camera, and it caught on fire because the lights were so yep. hot, right? Well, I I don't believe it actually caught on fire. The lights were so hot it caused it to crack. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, but it, it was this that that at least that much was was accurate mm-hmm. that it was because because they had these you know massive bulbs you know inches from the the, the face of the of the dummy because you you saw what they're doing they're basically doing a pinwheel mm-hmm. to to uh, to create the the scan lines that right. then were sent over the wire. Um, I mean, this was this was the very very early early attempts at at TV and TV didn't become something that could actually commercially produce until the thirties. Right. It was still a when it's decade off. Yeah. Yeah. The um, and most people didn't get it until the late 40s or 50s. Right. Um, so it, this is something where I think there's a plot hole um, in, in the story, because it turns out the Stooky Bill image is, with him laughing, giggling is on every screen ever. Mm-hmm. And we just don't perceive it. And okay, how? Yeah, you know that's not that's never explained. I assume it has to do with the toy maker, mm-hmm. um, but they they never go into that. And it's it it it, it I, I think it I think it's a writing flaw that they don't give us more of an explanation for for what exactly is happening here. Um, because it's apparently on every screen, but it's masked and we don't see it. Mm-hmm. And then why does it activate in 2023? What is it about this satellite? It's this is all. Well, they they did give very, a reason for that. 
they, well, it, it, it goes by really fast and yeah. there's a lot of hand waving here. There is. What, what yeah. it is, is essentially kind of the same thing as we got in The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon, where um, Matt Smith's doctor embedded a clip of the silence saying you should kill us all on sight mm-hmm. in the moon landing broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you don't remember the silence after you look at them, Everyone sees that clip, but forgets the part about the silence, but it lives there subconsciously of you should kill us on sight. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of the same thing as that. There's a hidden subliminal element in broadcasting that has an effect on humanity eventually. Right, right. Now, they, they don't have an explicit line of how that that signal, that image got into all screens, but it's it's I think it's meant to be implied. And again, maybe not clearly, or at least not well. I, I think it was clear, but I thought it was clear anyways, but that it was the toy maker mm-hmm. that did this whole thing because oh, yeah. it was a toy from the toy maker. And the toy maker was doing this from 1925 all the way to present day. Um, and of course, he's the one that then activated the signal, if you will. But they, again, they don't say that explicitly. Yeah. But given given the power they've given the toy maker, which is near infinite, why bother? Mm-hmm. Why not just mm-hmm. do like why Start in 1925. Why not just do it today? Because it's fun for him to do. Mm-hmm. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I think this is one. Of the, you know, going off a comment that Russell T. Davies made about his his new tenure on on the show, as the showrunner, he's moving firmly into science fantasy land mm-hmm. instead of science fiction land. And so, welcome back, Stephen Moffat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, we're clearly going to be getting a lot of stuff where. It, we we could call it a plot hole or it doesn't follow logically uh, from a, you know, scientific or otherwise, you know, other logical point of view. But you, but because it's fantasy, we wave our hand at it, at it and we en- just don't enjoy the story. Uh, don't think too much about it. And that's I think we're going to have to get used to that <laughs> on Doctor Who in this in this tenure. Well, I I, I think it's I, I saw that same comment where you're saying, you know, th- people thinking of Doctor Who as hard science fiction. I mean, who ever thought of Doctor Who as hard science fiction? <laughs> right. <laughs> this, this has always been science fantasy. And in Stephen Moffat, it became science fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um. So so now we brought up the the toy maker. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about him for a minute, because there was, you know, given modern wokeness, there was uh, there's been an issue about the toy maker for a long mm-hmm. time because in recent years. But it predates this um, because the Celestial toy maker was introduced back in the mid 1960s during um, during uh, William Hartnell's era. And. The serial he was part of was completely lost for a long time. And um, and eventually the fourth part was recovered, as well as some little clips of part one. Um, but it was it was nobody had seen it for, you know, decades. And it had developed this uh, very positive uh, status in fans memories uh and in and you know Michael Goff's toy maker even though nobody had ever seen it uh in you know since the mid 60s was was thought to be this you know really great machiavellian villain and there was all this desire to bring him back and they planned to bring him back multiple times most notably in season 23 uh which was um 
uh, the one that got canceled when they put Colin Baker on hiatus for 18 months, and then they came back with Trial of a Time Lord. They actually had a script written, which Big Finish has now done a version of called The Nightmare Fair, which brought back the Celestial Toymaker. And and he was called, and then, then in the late 80s, I guess they, they found this, you know, tape of the fourth part, and fans got a look at it, and suddenly a lot of fans said, this may not have been the greatest thing ever. Um, because the games that Steven and Dodo and the doctor play are all really simple. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's this one game that the doctor is forced to play, by the way, to get ready for this, I went and rewatched the celestial toy maker. And mm-hmm. actually, I guess it was the mm-hmm. first time I'd ever seen it. Um, but I, I watched a, you know, fan reconstruction of the first three episodes. And then I watched the fourth right. and the doctor is playing this game that the toy maker builds as the trilogic game and it's towers of Hanoi, you know, mm-hmm. which is a very well-known and game that's that it, once you know how to, how it's done, it's easy. And so it's not as the toy maker builds it, this sophisticated game for a sophisticated mind. It's simple enough. Children can solve it. Um, and Steven and Dodo's games are even more simple. Um, but I thought in watching it that I actually liked it. I think it drags mm-hmm. in part three, um, but actually, and it's got a clever resolution um, where the doctor and the toy maker are kind of evenly matched and neither, it looks like neither one can win without just without harming the other. And then the first doctor at the last minute, based on a suggestion from Stephen, pulls the fat out of the fire and completely wins. Mm-hmm. But he, in talking to Stephen and Dodo at the end, he says now, Oh, by the way, the toy maker in the script writer's mind was meant to be a member of the doctor's people. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the meddling monk. Uh, we didn't know they were time Lords yet, but that's what he was meant to be. However, um, and it's clear in the celestial toy maker, the doctor knows who the toy maker is. He's met him before. He's been here before in the toy maker's realm. Mm-hmm. And so he immediately knows what's going on when he, Steven and Dodo show up. But at the end, the doctor is saying to Steven and Dodo that he's an immortal being. He can never stop. He lives for winning and losing. And I've just beat him, which is rare. And there will be future encounters. I'm not getting out of this so easy. And and this is the first time this that promise gets paid off. But when it comes to the wokeness thing, some people noticed Michael Goff is wearing Asian clothes in this. And the word celestial is a nickname for Chinese people. And so there's there's has been an attempt to read this as a racist thing with the toy maker as the Chinese toy maker. Well, I did a bunch of research on this just to see a few, just to check out aspects of this. Um, It is not clear. It is not, it is not nearly so clear as people are making it out. In the first place, the toy maker is consistently referred to in the original scripts as just the toy maker. There is a moment at the beginning of episode, so episode one of the four parts is called the Celestial Toy Room. But when you watch that episode, there is nothing Chinese about this toy room. Mm. It looks like a British toy room. 
And so the mm-hmm. natural interpretation of celestial in that context would mean out among the stars. You know, just like the doctor tells the toy maker, we could take your games back to the stars in 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 the giggle. So it's not a Chinese toy room. It's just a it's a British toy room. It's in the stars. And then there is an early line in um, in this first episode where in the script, the doctor refers to the toy maker just one time as the celestial toy maker. But people who've checked noticed that the C is not capitalized. Mm-hmm. So it would seem to have its ordinary meaning of out among the stars. And then Dodo one time says, well, so who is the celestial toy maker? There's nothing about this being Chinese. You look at Michael Goff. He's not in yellow face. They're not putting they haven't put Chinese makeup on him. And he's not using a Chinese accent. He's using a British accent. Mm-hmm. So he just does not look Chinese, except for the fact that they put him in Chinese dress. It, I've seen it suggested that that's because of Towers of Hanoi, because that yeah. game has Asian resonances. So they said, well, let's put him in an Asian costume because he's up against the doctor. You know, Stephen and Dodo are fighting clowns and then they're fighting playing cards and then they're fighting a British schoolboy. And the clowns are in clown costume and the the cards are who are persons are in card costumes and the British schoolboys in a British schoolboy costume. And the doctor is playing the toy maker with this Asian game. So let's put him in Asian garb. You know, and that would make sense. Um, so it it doesn't really look like they're trying to make him Chinese here. All, and that's part point one. But Father, did you have something before? Well, I before you to move two? on to any other points, mm-hmm. I, I'd, like, I'd like to uh, comment. Uh, first of all, I, I also watched this. Um, but if you look online, there are multiple ways you can watch it. You know, some there's there's one group out there that they put out these really bad CD computer generated mm-hmm recreations don't just don't bother they're they're horrible uh there's a group called loose cannon that they took um the telesnaps they took any existing footage in telesnaps and they would animate the telesnaps so they do basically photoshop animation yeah with the telesnaps and that is much more watchable because mm-hmm. they're they're really good about making things move and taking telesnaps from one part, you know, like say they're the Dodo and Steven are standing in front of a door. Well, they'll, they'll reuse the same door telesnap just so that you get that, or they'll reuse different scenes and things like that to make it much more fluid and make it much more uh, uh, watchable. That's the way to do it. Cause like I said, they do take some of the animated footage and things like that and snap it in. And it worked so much better. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very much worth watching it that way. So you look for loose cannon. It was LC 36 is the, mm-hmm. is the, their number for it for loose cannon 36. Yeah. And that's what I watched. I, I saw some of the bad CGI and I didn't watch that. I watched loose cannon. Um, so any, in any event, it doesn't really look like this guy's meant to be Chinese. It looks like he's meant, and if he was meant to be from one of the doctors, one of the doctor's people, he's not from China. He's from Gallifrey. And mm-hmm. also, even if he's not, if he's like he's presented here, some kind of immortal interdimensional being, which can, you can read the original Celestial Toymaker series as because the doctor says he's this immortal being that goes on forever. He's not from China. 
So mm-hmm. it 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 doesn't look like they're trying to make this guy out to be Chinese. But let's suppose he was. Is it racist to call someone from China celestial? You know who does that? Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the reason it, it, it's where it comes from is it's a modification of uh, in in Mandarin it's Jiangjiao, which is uh, I forgive my pronunciation for any people who speak Mandarin, but um, it's it means the Celestial Empire. That was what China called itself. And the Empire of Heaven or the Celestial Empire. And so citizens of the Celestial Empire were called Celestials. And this passed over into 19th century English. Uh, Not so much, apparently, at least from what I've been able to find in England, but in places that had more contact with China, like America and Australia and places like that, you'd refer to Chinese nationals as Celestials. Because they came from the Celestial Empire. And it, it, from what I can tell, it was not considered a slur. It was just a nickname, just like you could call an American a Yankee in, if you don't distinguish between Northern Americans and Southern Americans <laughs> who aren't Yankees, but Rebs. Um, in any event, it doesn't appear to have been an, ins- an insult. And it doesn't appear to have really, from what I could tell, it didn't really look like it was in British slang. and. Chinese people use it today. Um, they they either either in a negative way to refer to the Chinese Communist Party or in a positive patriotic way. So this just does not appear to be a racial slur. It looks mm-hmm. like this is a case of modern, ignorant, hypersensitive people seeing, oh, here's a term that got used for a particular ethnic group, it must be an offensive insult when really there isn't background for that there. Well, I I want to call out too in this episode when the doctor is offering to take the toy maker with him in the TARDIS and go, you know, play games for all eternity. He says, it'll be celestial. We could be celestials. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And celestials was a, We've encountered other beings like that before in New Who. Eternals. Yeah. Eternals. Right. Some things like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, that said, uh, moving on to other things. I don't, I don't have a good transition in my mind. For, for That's okay. That, but, I'll, yeah. I'll give you one. So it's interesting, though. There was a little bit of, of racial something in here where in 1925, the toy maker is talking to the character, Charles, I forget his last name. Um, he's, he's yeah, yeah. He's the guy who comes to pick up Stooky Bill from the toy shop, and it's raining outside. And at one point, the toy maker, who is affecting a German accent deliberately badly, mm-hmm. um, says, "Oh, I apologize for the rain. I see you are used to warmer climes." And he winks, and and it's because uh, Charles is of Indian ancestry. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and he says, actually, I was born in Cheltenham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was a little that, unfortunately, that popped me out of the story for a second, because why would an interdimensional being have 1925 attitudes that are meant to oh. convey racism? I and, think he was you know. just trying to tweak Banerjee and make make 
um, put him on his back foot, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but fine. But um, and the toy maker is an interdimensional jerk. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it po- still popped me out of the story because it it's intruding a modern sensibility question into it that I'm now forced to think about. Right. When it could have just breezed past. You know, speaking of the toy store, the Emporium, uh, it was a nice set because it's it's a toy store on its surface. But when you looked mm-hmm. at the things in the background, there was a lot of creepy stuff mm-hmm. in the background. Oh, yes. You know, scary very. clowns, scary dolls. It was very appropriately the toy maker, you know, uh, nice on the surface, malevolent just below mm-hmm. the surface. And I thought that was well done. Well, uh, dolls have uncanny valley to them. You know, so, yeah. Incidentally, that reminds me of something else. The iconography that the toy maker uses in this is significantly drawn from the original serial, because in the original serial, um, in part one, Stephen and Dodo must face off against these two clowns. The female clown is named Clara. The other one is, is it Chester? Um, no, no, it's not. I f- it was like Jeff or something. It was like a four letter. Yeah, I forget what the name. other clown. There was a male clown and a female clown. And um, and they have their faces are in the wood paneling mm. in yeah. the giggle. Um, but- also. I want to mention yeah. something just real quick about, well, you know, the clown's name was Clara because that was Clara Oswald who got trapped by the Celestial toy maker. No, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> And that's why she's suspended in the last second of her life. Yep. Um, so that was part one of the Celestial Toymaker. In part two, they um, they face off against playing cards that are people that have come to life and they're dressed as there's a king of hearts and a queen of hearts and a joker and a, a jack of hearts. And guess what? The toy maker has in the giggle. He's got cards. Mm hmm. All and, over the place. Yeah. And, and he draws a king mm-hmm. of hearts. Yeah. Right. Uh, then the, in part three of the Celestial Toymaker, they make their way to this place called the dancing floor, where they have to get across the dancing floor without being eternally trapped by the beat. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of the giggle, here's the toy maker dancing and dancing with the doctor and later dancing with Kate and dancing with Mel and so forth. So we, so I I thought it was interesting, even though they never made anything out of it. Russell T Davies was clearly drawing on these elements from the original celestial toy maker, Mm -hmm. the clowns, the cards, the dancing. Mm -hmm. Before we leave 1925, I do want to mention that John Logie Baird, uh, the actor who played him, John McKay, also played the same John Logie Baird in in a, another uh, miniseries produced by Russell T Davies. So he pulled mm, the same actor, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, so the thing that the so, so there's a little bit of modern social commentary here going on. Uh, a couple of the elements that are brought that the toy maker brings in is uh, everyone. And this the, the big crisis in the modern day is everyone thinks that they're right all the time, which is and then they make it explicitly a connection to mm-hmm. social media and the, the tribalism of today uh, mm-hmm. in our public discourse. Yep. Uh, so there's so there's that. And then and um, that's fair. That's fair. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, they're not they're not being partisan there. People do act that way on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So both sides. Yeah, this, all is, sides. this is taking. This is taking Twitter and putting out in the real world. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially what uh, where it was like. In fact, they could have said that and even just uh, so. Yeah. So that was that. Um, 
I have to uh, say that the the unit headquarters looks like the Stark Avengers building from yeah, Marvel. Er, er, everyone says that, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> t- it is. <laughs> yeah, it took it took a page out of that. Um, was great to see Melanie Bush, and he was uh, Donna commenting that. Oh, so I wasn't the first redhead in the TARDIS. Uh, so that was <laughs> yeah. that was nice. And her explanation of where where she's been. Yeah, she says she now she ignored all of the time she spent traveling with the seventh doctor in Big Finish. Yeah. But um, she says she does give us which could take them too far afield. But she does say that Sabalom Glitz lived to be 101 and he died tripping over a whiskey bottle and then had a big (laughs) Viking funeral. Yes. (laughs) I also like how she says um, that uh, that. She's here at unit because Kate offered her a job and it mm-hmm. makes sense because Melanie Bush was a computer programmer. Yep. That's that's right. What her skill set was. Now, of course, she's way out of date from the 80s, but yeah. she's also worked, no doubt, on all kinds of fantastic alien computers. Sure. And that's the kind of skill set you'd like to have on unit. Um I mean- so I she thought, could she could pick it up pretty quick too. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I thought you know actually that would be a recruiting from companions would be a good which we see would be a good thing for unit because they they're already used to interacting with this area mm-hmm. and they know about this area and they've got other skills you can do. And, I, I love. I love Donna's job interview. Kate said, you know, Kate says, well, you want a job? Donna's like, how much? 60K. Make it 120 in five, five weeks of vacation. Done. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was great. I had a note on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I then went back and looked at that companion support group they established at the end of the power of the doctor. And Kate is at that meeting. And Ooh. she says to the other, to the companions, I may have to offer y'all work. And mm-hmm. so, okay, Chris Chibnall set that in motion. And so he deserves credit for that. And and then Russell T. Davies picked up on it. It's okay. Mel, Mel accepted the offer. Um, yep. Don't forget, Ace and Tegan also were working for UNIT in the, uh, the 13th Doctor. Uh, they were called into UNIT. They- yeah. They weren't necessarily working for him, but they they were called in because okay. Ace has her own charity, which we know from books. Right, yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Oh, it's also been mentioned in uh, on screen in the Sarah Jane Adventures. It's mentioned that one of the Doctor's former companions named Dorothy has a charity called A Charitable Earth. Oh, yep. cool. Ace. Ace. Nice. So um, one thing I will say, yep. uh, speaking of Melanie, it was nice to see Bonnie Langford being able to use her singing ability. Yes. That, that wasn't involving screaming. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know. I was thinking of the famous moment where she allegedly was asked to scream in, in F major because it would match the outro music yeah. on a cliffhanger for the show. And here she actually got to sing an arpeggio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk about Vlinks, which is a brand new. V- the Vlinks. The Vlinks. Yeah. Which is brand new never seen before and completely just we we just kind of walked by we got to talk about the vlinks here in the room because that was it was just this character this alien well uh, at i think it, i think it's Computer. a robot was yeah. it yeah okay uh voiced by nick it's supposed Briggs, to be kind of like yeah yeah it's supposed to be an artificial intelligence i at least i i took it as being some yeah. like kind of artificial intelligence robot oh uh, i guess yeah yeah 
Um, yeah, which of course means it'll turn bad eventually. But that happens with all the yeah. humans anyway. <laughs> right, right. We'll, we'll find out it's actually chameleon. Uh, <laughs> Somehow they smuggle chameleon out of the, no. <laughs> well, and then the uh, the other thing, the other contemporary uh, issue that they kind of hint at is the the, the unit has the Vlinks has developed for unit this device, this armband called the Zdex that protects the wearer from the giggle. And uh, and going crazy, and uh, and they they kind of hint at oh there's the uh, the anti Z Dexers and the so oh. it's a very much an anti vax anti vaxers sort of. that yeah. was that was that was actually I was okay with that that was yeah. that was fun yeah that was that that one they, that one I I didn't mind at all yeah yeah, yeah. that was kind of funny uh, I, I was I was I, I mean I was kind of hoping the we need our uh, ZDX boosters or something like that. To be <laughs> into, ZDX but. boosters, um, and then we we also get a reference to the Archangel Network when they're talking about the Korean satellite mm-hmm. completing, mm-hmm. so that the internet is now available every single place on Earth, which it kind of already is already. <laughs> Starlink, you know, sort of um, um, yeah. excuse me, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, you know, let's go with it. Um, and then they said, um, you know, for the first time in history, everyone's now online. This is different from the Archangel Network, is is uh, how they put it, which is a yeah. reference back to the Harold Saxon Master uh, with the Tenth Doctor. So that, that that was kind of a fun to get that in there, where the Archangel Network was used to subvert um, humanity. Mm. Uh, so this right. is not that; it's just doing the same thing. Yeah. Now the giggle, like Don, is the one who figures out that the uh, the signal in people's brains is a series of notes. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Ha, 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 ha. And then they, they figured, mm-hmm. oh, that's a giggle. I'm like, I guess. I mean, it, da, 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 da. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, kind it, of. It's sort of a giggle. I mean, it, I mean, it, there are clowns that do that as their laugh in the, an arpeggio right. for their laugh. So. Well, they, they could have done. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> yep. Get a little Woody Woodpecker in there. Yeah, that would have been uh, interesting. Uh, we also get so speaking of uh, other th- um, you know um, contemporary issues sort of stuff. The doctor lectures humanity. Oh, this was lame. Yeah, the, what else is the, the 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 doctor gets <laughs> he's really dissing humanity, talking about our worst qualities. It's like no duh. Thank you. We've <laughs> we've been aware of this for a long time, and now this satellite thing has brought it to the surface. Right, right. We we know our our flaws. Our our you know we've had plenty of wars and hate and all that other stuff. We know. Uh, yeah, it's it yeah. was just weird for. Biggest I mean, the doctor re- biggest religion on earth has a whole sacrament to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I mean, the doctor spends so much time extolling the virtues of humanity, and suddenly at this point, I mean, maybe this shows this, it's the sign, you know, like a subtle sign of the doctor's, you know, wearing out that they that they bring up later. I guess maybe I don't know. Um, <laughs> but this is about the time when Donna accuses the doctor of, you know, you never stop charging forward. Uh, you, you you're wearing yourself out, and that's why the old face came back. That whole thing, and the idea that um, you know that the the and this was the thing I, I I was thinking about. This doctor is the opposite of the Time Lord Victorious. We mentioned this last mm-hmm. time, and uh, I think when we talked about Wild Blue Yonder, he's so very different. He's very down. He's so very um, aware of his limitations. Um, and you start to see it here in this unit mm-hmm. sequence in the in the episode. Um, There's also it's about this time that Donna makes. A, I forget exactly what she says. Maybe when he remembers. But she 
she she uses the word park. And then she says, is Park rude? And Shirley Ann Bingham says, eh, borderline. And and Donna kind of winces. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is more political, hypercorrect wokeness stuff going on. But I this is one that's out of my wheelhouse. I'm not. And apparently it's, it's fair. It, apparently it's not well established because Donna has to ask if it's offensive. And Shirley Ann Bingham only says borderline. But it's like, why would the word park? meaning like to, to park somewhere, why would that be offensive? I think because of the wheelchair. Yeah, but she wasn't no, using no, no. it in reference to Shirley Ann Bingham. Yeah. She's just using the word park. It's like anyone who would take offense at that <clears throat> is clearly ridiculously hypersensitive. Well, wasn't it when she was criticizing all the unit personnel and you all parked here in, you know, in your, yeah, at your stations? That's talking about the unit personnel, not oh, Shirley no. Ann Bingham. I know, but but including her in the yeah. Well, this is what we do now, right? This is we. This is if it's we ridiculous. A, I know it's a collective term, and then but we got to be afraid that we might offend one person included in the grand collective by the use of a term that is otherwise innocuous. I I get that. Yeah, it's it's kind yeah. Of he, dumb. So Don, I just just looked up the uh, uh, transcript. Says that sounds like we park him on the seafront. Oh, it's not even know, reference to the unit people. It's just him. Yeah. Um. Yeah, don't say companion. Yeah, though don't. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, it's weird. Yeah. I yeah I guess it. It sound it it does sound kind of like she thought it might be rude because you know you you someone who's in a wheelchair you might park them somewhere and and notice the number of hypotheticals that even involves she's not talking about Shirley Ann Bingham she's not talking about unit people she's talking about the doctor the doctor right and there just happens to be a person in a wheelchair present and you might hypothetically someday refer to parking a wheelchair. It's mm-hmm. like, that's just too many hypotheticals. This is ridiculous hypersensitivity. Yeah. It, it took me out of the story at the time. I remembered that yeah. that much. Yeah. Um, I, I just kind of let it blow over my head. But. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole salt thing, remember that we talked about the salt thing in the wild beyond or why the doctor thought that was such a bad idea, having this salt superstition announced at the edge of the universe. It comes up again, which is mm-hmm. he explains this is that playing a game at the edge of the universe is what opened the door for the toy maker to come in. He says that. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it it, it seems kind of a a huge stretch. Well, and and they did kind of say that at the edge of the universe, the walls between the multi, you know, walls are thin and things like that. So anything can happen. Well, apparently anything that can happen is the celestial toy maker comes into the universe. Uh, it's so the, the, when they, when doc, the doctor tried to go back to 1925 and they go to the toy shop and they get caught in those corridors, uh, it was kind of really the, the creepy body horror toy horror stuff really came out. Um, the, the oh, yeah. Charles Banerjee being the puppet, mm-hmm. that was, that mm-hmm. was really creepy. That was, and then he turns into David Tennant as the puppet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The, then, what was really good in that, that I just loved was Donna. This was this mm-hmm. was Donna at her best because at, at 
the, the 14 tells her, I may not be able to save your life this time. And she says, well, then maybe I'll save you. And she she shows that same attitude she did in Wild Blue Yonder. Of, well, then let's get out of out of here and kick its ass. Yeah. And when they get separated, she's confronted by the rest of the Stooky family. It's Stooky Sue, Stooky mm-hmm. Bill's wife, mm-hmm. and the three Stooky Babbies or babies, as normal people yep. say them. And <laughs> and and she and Stooky Sue is trying to intimidate her and the babies jump on her and are like trying to bite her and stuff like that. And Donna is just not having it. Um, yeah. When she walks into the room, she says, my name is Donna. And I warn you now, if this is a trick, I will kill you. <laughs> she says it just that simply. Yeah. Yeah. And then Stooky Sue is trying to trying to intimidate her. And and the babies jump on her and try to bite her. And Stooky Sue jumps on her. And Stooky Sue is talking to her in rhyme, you know, mm-hmm. as in little poems as a part of how she's trying to intimidate her. And Donna says, hello, Stooky. My name's Donna. Now I think that you're a goner and smashes her head against <laughs> a wall and decapitates the puppet and yep, then yep. intimidates the babies into crawling back into the shadows. <laughs> and it's like, go Donna. This is great. Yeah, that was good. And then with, and it was, was fun. And then we had the doctor and Donna get separated here, but they get back together again. And that's when the, the toy maker does this puppet show where he's trying, was, trying to intimidate the doctor yeah. this um, was great yeah. yeah yeah so he he's doing the puppet show he holds up a puppet he says to donna just to let you know what happened after after your doctor flew off he met this we met this woman named amy and he has an amy amy pond puppet he said yes he does have a thing for redheads and <laughs> um but then she was touched by a weeping angel and she died and he snaps the string and the Amy puppet, he cuts the strings and the Amy puppet falls down. And the doctor says, she died of old age. Oh, and suddenly in an American accent, oh, well, that's all right then. (laughs) And then he met Clara and she was killed by a bird. And he cuts the strings and the Clara puppet falls over. And the doctor says, she's still alive in the last second of her life. Oh, well, that's all right then. And then... He met Bill, and she was killed by the Cyberman, and he cuts the strings, and Bill falls over, and the doctor says, but her consciousness survives. Oh, well, that's all right then. And then the flux came and was killing everything, and and at this point, Donna's starting to have doubts, and this is a really compelling presentation mm-hmm. of Doctor Who history. When mm-hmm. you have it spelled out like that, okay, all of the major companions, especially the solo companions, since the 15th Doctor have died. And yeah, they... Tenth it, doctor. It, 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 since the Since the 10th Doctor, yeah. Um, uh, you know, Amy died, Clara died, Bill died. Yeah, they were Stephen Moffat deaths, so they had an asterisk. But having mm-hmm. it point out she died and then the doctor's throwing up the asterisk. It's, oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> um, you know, it was really effective and, and horrifying to see and, Doctor, Who's, Doctor Who's history portrayed that way. And Donna's starting to have doubts. And she turns to the doctor and says, is that true? And it's at that moment the doctor decides to change tactics and he challenges the toy maker to a game. So 
to get some off of, of this subject. Some people have pointed out that the 13th Doctor's companions did not die. Uh, well, they were all eminently forgettable. <laughs> right. <laughs> he did, he we did forgot have, about him. Even the Toy Maker <laughs> forgot about him. The Flex did kill half the universe, so there's that. Uh, but, yeah. But, and that's and, what he, the Toy Maker brings well, up. Well, he, he, didn't, he didn't mention that, you know, Rose didn't die. She went to another universe, but she didn't die. You know, didn't mention yeah. that, that that Mickey and... and uh, uh, well, why am I blanking on her name now? Uh, the one I was blanking on? After, <laughs> the one after, yeah, Martha, one Jones. Jones. Martha Jones. Martha Jones didn't die, you know, because he's only talking about the ones since. that died. Well, since well the only the ones that died since that died. Yeah. But, he, but it, you know, because, yeah, because Dan didn't die and, and all those others. Mm-hmm. No, Dan just almost so, died. Yeah. Almost but, died. Well, they almost died. <laughs> he's, he's an evil villain. And I think right. the point remains, when you look at the Doctor's Companions, in the period after Donna Noble. Wow. Lots of death among the companions when you have it all summarized before that, in the previous, you know, nine, you know, nine doctors, there were what, two companion deaths? Mm, At least. Mm -hmm. Well, four. So there's Katarina, who was the first, then Sarah kingdom, then Adric, then chameleon. So there's at least four. I don't ever, I don't count Chameleon. I just, <laughs> he was meant, Chameleon just got stuffed in a closet somewhere. He was meant to be he's a not really dead. Uh, I guess so. I just, uh, he's not really dead. He's just stuffed in a closet in the TARDIS somewhere. <laughs> so um, the, the toy maker also brings up that, you know, he's ever since he came into the universe, he's been playing games against everyone he could find. Uh, and he mentions playing against the master mm. and beating mm. him and imprisoning him in the gold tooth in his, in his head. Right. Yeah. So this is apparently a reference to the master at the end of Power of the Doctor, where he's on the Mm -hmm. cyber conversion planet. He's been critically injured. He's been forced back into his own body and he apparently dies when the planet does its thing. Um, So and so that it's apparently that master he's talking about. He says the master Mm -hmm. begged for his life. He played me a game. He lost and I put him in my gold tooth and he smiles and the tooth sparkles so you can see it. And then at the end of the episode, after he's vanished, um, been banished from reality, we see the gold tooth sitting on the edge of the Avengers platform. And just like at the end of the end of time. Um, we see a hand uh, with a f- woman's hand with red fingernail polish, pick up the tooth and take it just like we saw the master Harold Saxon's, the master's ring picked up by a woman with red fingernail polish and carried off for his revival. So here we're clearly hinting the master's coming back. The tooth's going to be a means of that. And people have pointed out we hear laughter when when this happens and i went back and listened to the laughter to see if i could identify it and there is both male and female laughter there mm. so it's meant to imply multiple versions of the master the uh the the tardis wiki lists all the masters from or not all of them but it lists um uh anthony ainley mm-hmm. john sam sasha Wadwan, and michelle gomez mm-hmm. As list those were masters that it's their laughs yeah. that are mixed in there. Mixed in. Interesting. And it sounded like the female definitely sounded like Michelle Gomez to me. So they're being ambiguous about which master might come back. See, I, I want that the hand reaching to be have been Michelle Gomez's. <laughs> I want that to have been Missy's, <laughs> that they're going to bring Missy back. Missy back. But bring Missy back as even more evil. <laughs> 
if that's possible. It is, but it's possible. Uh, one thing the uh, toy maker mentioned is that he went and he played these games with God and everybody, but there's one person he ran from, the one who waits. We don't know who that is yet. Is that going to be the big bad of the next season? And that's what I'm, I'm figuring. We yeah. had we had this reference from um, from Beep the Meep saying it was going to tell the boss, and I assumed like most most people that was going to be the toy maker, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. Yep. So I'm assuming the one who waits is is the boss, and um, and. All the toy maker says about the one who waits is I saw it there hiding and I ran. Mm. And the doctor asks about this and the toy maker just kind of shakes his head and says part of someone else's game. So we may get more of an understanding of the one who waits from someone else who has played the toy maker, who's played a game with the toy maker. So it's it's it's. Prediction is Thanos after he snapped out the <laughs> Avengers universe. Now he's going to snap out the Doctor Who universe. Yeah, well, we already lost half no. of the universe with the flux. Um, yeah. So by, we... by the way, I want to comment. I wanted to comment on that because this is not the first time they've killed a huge chunk of the universe. They did. <clears throat> they did that in Legopolis back mm-hmm. in the fourth Doctor's Which time. Which gets name checked in this episode, by the way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they they killed a huge swath of the universe in Legopolis because of entropy. And they didn't really mourn it. They just kind of moved on. But here, the the devastation of the flux is being dealt with. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't visited planets ruined by the flux. We may in the next series. But um, I like that they haven't just suddenly forgot about half the universe dying. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you, do we want to talk about the line about how you know, the toy maker turned God into a Jack in the box? Yeah, it's it just casual really. blasphemy and it's impossible. And so it, it, if, if you want to imagine the toy maker playing, you know, an entity that identified itself as God and getting turned into a Jack in the box, well, fine. But why does God need a spaceship? Exactly. You know. <laughs> the Star Trek five. Uh, the doctor does, con- does confront the toy maker with the question is why you've got all this power. Why can't you use it to do good? Which seems to confound the cut toy maker for a second. And then mm-hmm. just says, there is no good and evil only win and lose in my reality. I don't have, there's no, there's no morality uh, just winning and losing, which <laughs> that sounds like is your reality wall street. I, I don't Oh, sorry. <laughs> mm. Or social media. I, I, social like, media. I like how the, um, how the toy maker in responding to that comments on how fascinated he is by humanity. He says he's fallen in love with us because, you know, we have people isolating themselves from life just to play games, mm-hmm. you know, a vi- meaning video games. He's referring to video game culture. He says, you make games of bricks falling on other bricks. You are exceptional. And and then he talks about all the more Lego, all the yeah. mind <laughs> games, the dating and the ghosting. And, you know, yep. <laughs> we, we are a gaming uh, people. Um, so the, the doc, so we have the best two out of three, the whole thing like that. And so the, the toy maker says, I, you know, um, you beat me in the first one and I play you in the second one. And the third, the third game we play with the next doctor. And that's when he hits the doctor for regeneration. And this comes very unexpectedly. And I thought it was dramatically effective. Yeah. You know, just all of a sudden he's talking and all of a sudden, wham, 14 is skewered through the chest by a laser beam. Right. And he's just paralyzed there. Yes. And and this comes 
we don't have the typical buildup we do of getting ready for a last goodbye and everything and a dramatic mm-hmm. sacrifice. It's just wham, you're dead. Yeah. Uh, yep. No, I don't want to go. It was just, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's time. Um, and uh, and so we had to buy generation and then they challenged him to the oldest game. So they played the doctor played the second oldest game or the oldest card game or whatever, the cut, the easiest card game. But the oldest game is, Ball. This is the something the toy maker brought up earlier. Playing catch. Playing catch. Actually, I think the toy maker identifies hide and seek as the second oldest game, and I think it's the other way around. We've been hiding and seeking longer than we've been playing ball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Hiding, see, hiding and seeking is a survival technique. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have to learn how to hide and seek out the bad guys. <laughs> so they play three way catch on the uh, the the helicopter the helico- uh, landing platform there over the falling over the uh the, the big fall oh by the way i have to go back to the when kate came out and says where are my men oh they're they're still falling i assume and then you hear thud 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 oh not anymore like, yep. yeah. oh man that was suitably creepy the uh they also addressed the fact that uh, the unit is way out in the public eye now because it's got this prominent tower. Right. And the doctor says, I remember when your father did everything he could to keep this totally secret, which was an aspect of the third doctor's time. I like so when we get to the so the two doctors challenge the toy maker simultaneously in unison with each other. They say, I challenge you to a game. And he's therefore got to play them both. And when he and he kind of accuses them of cheating, but they're saying, why? Why is it cheating? We challenge you. We're the same person. You're the reason we're split. So we haven't done anything wrong. And by his own rules, he's got to accept he's got to now play ball against the two of them. And editing in this game is everything. It's the editing that makes this. It's Mm -hmm. very dramatic. I liked having the resolution be this game of catch because it's physical and it's not sci-fi physical. We're not shooting lasers at each other or jumping over you know, laser beams or things. We're just, we're playing catch and it's very fast paced cutting to where you often don't even see the throw. You just see now Shooty Gatwa has the ball in his hand. Now the toy maker has it in his hand and it's, it's very fast paced. It's very tightly edited. It only goes on for a minute before the toy maker accidentally doesn't quite connect with the ball and it goes sailing over the edge. Um, I thought this was very effective. I liked it. I like to have this as a variation from a sci-fi ending and a talking ending and a shoot 'em up ending. I liked having just this simple physical game be our resolution. Also, mm-hmm. I noticed the doctor in challenging the both the 14th and the 15th in challenging the toy maker to games is picking deliberately simple games. You know, mm-hmm. cut the cards, t- catch the ball. Because those are the ones the toy maker has the least chance of twisting to his own advantage. Right. right. They're so simple. If this was a complex game with a bazillion rules, the toy maker could easily twist it to his advantage. So you actually maximize your chance of beating him by going simple. Right. Yeah. Well, and he does. And he does in the original episode, the, heart, the first doctor episode where he keeps advancing the game. He gets bored by how long it's taking the doctor to play the game. So he keeps advancing it. Move to this step, move to this step. And of course, that's how William Hartnell ends up tricking him and winning right. is by m- mimicking the, to- the toy maker's voice to move to the last step. Right. And right. then the toy maker is, or the toy maker's universe is destroyed. Um, there is actually kind of a home. cult. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. There is kind of a callback to that that original episode, though, where uh, the 15th Doctor is getting a little too into it, and he yeah. wings it at the 14th Doctor. Hey, we're on the same side. <laughs> no, he's, I'm sorry. And, <laughs> that was yeah, and in the original episode, Dodie and, and Steven, when they're playing hopscotch, Thought they were they were on the same side, so they could advance together. And of course, the 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 uh, schoolboy's like, no, no, you got to play separately, and whichever one of you gets there first will win for both of you. Right, right. Um, so we get we we after the toy maker is folded up and tossed away. Um, but his and, legions are coming. But his legions are coming. Uh, we have this whole post, you know, denouement of the story of the 14th doctor needing to retire. Um, and they're in the TARDIS and they're talking about this and he's like, what do I do? And it's, a, it's, they don't explicitly call back to, but it's a little bit of a feeling of a callback to the 11th doctor, like the, the day in the life when he lived with Amy and Rory with the mm-hmm. little black cubes, the slow and had, invasion, the power yes. of three, right. Power of three. And, um, so he, this idea is like, what do I, I, I can't, you know, retire. And she says, this is the adventure you've never had before a regular life. And so we'll see if the doctor after a billion years, he says, um, can, can just settle down and enjoy regular life. Um, and, and we get this Donna talking about how you got this old face to, so that you can find me and go home because she's the only one, the last one he can go to um, apart from, the well, he, he could, doctor companions, but he could horn in on uh, on 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 Martha and Mickey. But yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, they're off doing their thing. Um, but yeah, Donna was the one who had a you know had a family that he could go a normal have, life, yeah, a normal life. Um, and the fifteenth doctor, you know, makes a bunch of references to all things that the the fourteenth doctor has been through. Um, he, he references the Dalek master plan, war games, spirit from space, like a whole ton of them. There's the artist wiki lists them all. Um, and then he says, um, I forget exactly how he puts it, but I'm better because you went He's, and got, he says, I'm fine because you fix yourself. We're time right. Lords. We're doing rehab out of order. Yes. Right. Right. That's, and so it's interesting. It's a, again, it's a kind of, I think I saw, I saw Russell T Davies say how um, Disney wanted to reboot Dr. Who from scratch. First doctor, everything. Yeah. Uh, right. And this was a sort of compromise the, where you could just at least reboot the feel of the doctor. We go back to a doctor who isn't carrying all the trauma with him from the previous 14 and we can start from scratch and that which, which is good because all of the all of the new who era doctors have been traumatized right you know 9 was carrying the time war trauma 10 was carrying the time war trauma 11 was carrying the time war trauma then they got over that but then 12 is carrying trauma and Jodie Whittaker is carrying trauma and we've had a lot of trauma here i can understand <laughs> disney's desire to let's just have fun adventures for a while right Right, exactly. So it, they kind of close that out with this special, you know, and mention mm-hmm. all the trauma. Let's get it all in the open and now put it in a box, literally with the toy maker, and move <laughs> on from it. Um, so then we well, all, and, and yeah, and we of course we get we get the split Tardises too now. Yep, the by generation. Fourteenth Doctor, which apparently he's still using because he's talking about you know taking Rose to to Mars and things like that. Right, uh, but he is settling down. You know, and it, it's uh, it's settling down on the most com- most common 
humble thing, a family potluck on the back patio. Yeah. Yeah. With mole shooting going on in the background, I was like, do British people really shoot moles? I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, we had whenever we had moles tearing up our yard, we just set a poison. Uh, I think, Will, for the old soldiers out there. Uh, hunting and that's I, exactly what they said yeah. they, they they didn't say his name but they say granddad oh yeah no uh, no, no. You know, they're grandma. talking about wolf but i'm just yeah. going moles are very small targets that live underground would you really try shooting them or would you just poison <laughs> you just put poison in their tunnels for them it's a way to get him uh mentioned and in the in the story and have yeah. some, him doing something in the background i just love the fact that they included wolf that, that yeah nice. i like that yep uh, so we do steal a page from Moffat and nobody dies. We get to keep our doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, oh, it's, no, it's, well, I thought yeah, it was kind we, of funny. We kill the doctor, but then we walk it back. Yes, right. We we yeah. kill him and then we get him back. So nobody dies. Um, and so it's interesting. Someone pointed out um, Rose got a human doctor, you know, the Metacrisis doctor. Yeah. And the Donna gets Rose. a gets a Gallifreyan Time Lord doctor to, to keep yep. it as well. Uh, yeah. So. Kind of uh, fascinating to, ten, to see ten, that. Tenth doctors for everybody, I guess. Uh, I'll take one. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so the one thing that is still not clear from the episode is how does if we're doing rehab out of order, that would imply that for Shooty to be healed, somehow the 14th doctor would need to regenerate into him again at some point in the future or something, yeah. which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But <laughs> reincorporate no, like the like, yeah. like they bi-generated. See this, mm-hmm. see, this is getting into the multiverse and all that stuff where I don't think they're saying that the 14th doctor becomes the 15th doctor after this. I don't, I, I don't, don't see that at I, all. I don't know. I think it's unclear. I think you can, I think it's ambiguous. I think you yeah. can read it different ways. Cause I, that's, that's where I, I see the multi, this multi-regeneration thing being, no, these are splits and the 14th doctor's timeline, whether he regenerates again or not, they haven't made clear yeah. it, it, or if he just dies, it, it yeah. could be like Daryl Bim's feeling the future, uh, parapsychological experiments where it turns out, believe it or not, this is actually highly statistically significant evidence what Daryl Bim did was he took standard psychological experiments, like a learning test where you show a person a bunch of words, you split the words in half, you have them practice half of the words, but not practice the other half. Then you ask them to recall as many words as they can. Unsurprisingly, they recall the ones they practiced. So what Daryl Bim did was say, let's switch the order of these things. So first they show you the list of words. Then they ask you to remember as many as you can. Then you get to practice half of them. And surprisingly, people remember more of the words they will end up practicing that are assigned to them randomly than the words they were not randomly assigned to practice. So it's like you benefit from the practicing you're going to do in the future. So I guess maybe Shudi Gatwa is presentimentally benefiting from the therapy <laughs> that 14 is going to do in the future. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the giggle. And I want to take a, just a bit here. We're going very long in this episode, but take a bit here and talk about our overall impression of the three specials as the 60th anniversary. What do you think of them as a whole? Father Corey? I enjoyed them more or less. Um, you know, again, we, we've had our complaints about 
each of them, you know, and whatever. But by and large, they were good. They were they were fun episodes. Uh, like like Jimmy said at the beginning, this is probably the the only one that really feels like a 60th anniversary special. Um, I mean, but that, again, but I, I'm also of the opinion that you know the specials didn't have to be these big. Uh, glorious you know multi-explosion super mega performance just having three good episodes was you know i think was still a good way to do the anniversary because then they don't have the obligation of a full season and all that just giving us you know giving us doctor who you know it's i think is a good way to celebrate how about you jimmy yeah i think the first two i mean i think it was nice to have uh effectively the 10th doctor and donna back together again um, I, um, I would have preferred if they had been a bit more, <clears throat> a bit more comedic than mm-hmm. they were, especially in the first two episodes. I would have preferred if they were a bit less woke. Um, but I enjoyed the first two episodes and, uh, and I think the third one really did deliver on the kind of scope and feeling that it needed to have in order to, in order to make this a successful anniversary. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I'm in general agreement. I, I'm glad we have them. I'm glad we got them. I'm glad they got Tennant and Tate to reprise their roles. Essentially, it felt suitably big to bring them in and and to do that um it would have been fun to have other you know matt smith or peter capaldi whatever or you know heck peter davison or sylvester mccoy show up but um the it was nice to have them there and um it uh it, it felt suitably big especially as we've launched this new era of doctor who on disney plus and we've got russell t davies back um it felt suitable and you know the new things they've introduced it'll be interesting to see how they they pan out the jury is going to be out on that one for a while but uh it is um it was it was good it was good i was uh i'm, I'm happy with them so father Corey had to uh, uh briefly step away uh, i think we lost his uh, stream but um we'll continue to wrap things up here because we have a bunch of listener feedback we want to get to and uh feedback uh, first feedback is coming from the last episode, Wild Blue Yonder. Uh, Sammy G on our Discord writes, uh, I love the episode. One thing you three talked about was Tennant's ability to play both the hero in Doctor Who and the villain in shows like Criminal UK. One show where he kind of does both at the same time is Good Omens by Neil Gaiman. I was wondering if any of you have seen the show and what your thoughts might be on it. Uh, I'll just say I haven't seen the show. It's been It's on my list of things to watch, but I haven't seen it. I've seen a couple episodes and it's, it's fun. It's fun. I just never really sat down and watched, binged it. So yeah, it's, it's a sitcom about an angel and a demon. Uh, The demon is played by David Tennant and I'm, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Uh, The, the angels played by um, Michael. Is it Michael? No. Sheen. Michael Sheen. Who, who, um, the, the two of them together are, are, I've seen them in other, other things together, just in, in, you know, real life. Uh, and they are great together. So that it does look like really fun. And they are, they are frenemies. So they're, they're, they're friends, but they're also enemies because of course, one being an angel and one being a fallen angel, a demon. Right. So, uh, then Doug's film and TV on our YouTube writes good review of wild blue yonder. I'll admit it was weird and scary, but it was a great story. I'll say this, that when I first saw this story, it felt like a story that Stephen Moffat would write during his era. And to be honest, it felt like a tribute to the Stephen Moffat era. Could you see Wild Blue Yonder as a Stephen Moffat story? Uh, 
Uh, and then he says, my prediction for the giggle is that the doctor might need help and it might be a multi-doctor story. And I know Peter Capaldi took a selfie with Rachel Talele, the director of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. when we, they were filming the Star Beast. But who knows? It could be a multi-doctor story. Well, in a sense, since we got the 14th and the 15th, but that was as far as that went. In yeah. terms of A Wild Blue Yonder and Stephen Moffat, well, Stephen Moffat is very creative, um, and so, you know, I guess I could see that as a point of similarity, um, but I don't know that I would, it, it didn't have the timey wiminess that I associate yeah. with Stephen Moffat. To me, that's the most characteristic Moffat-y aspect of his creativity is the way he uses time travel in, mm-hmm. um, because that's in Blink and that's in the Pandorica Opens and that's in mm-hmm. the whole River Song story. It's all how time travel can be used to creative effect in a time travel mm-hmm. show. And and this didn't really do that. But to my mind, that's the most Stephen Moffat-y plot element. For me, the most moffat thing is the quippy the, dialogue. The dialogue on the dialogue, yeah. It, yeah. it didn't really have that, so... I. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and nobody really dies in Moffat, and, and of course, the the not things do become <laughs> not things dead. Well, villains die in Moffat, but uh, the, the the heroes don't. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, and then Amy on YouTube writes, "I prefer Donna not be mostly comedic in this and the previous episode. It allows Catherine Tate a chance to shine as a dramatic actress, and I think she should be given more opportunities to play in serious roles." Also, Donna isn't the same character she was in 2008. She has a settled life and feels valued by her family, something she wasn't when we first met her and met her again a year later. She still has her fire, but she's been through a lot, and I believe she still has the doctor's memories. He asked, can you instead of could you when talking about not Donna bringing up the flux, etc. So Donna has more gravitas, pun intended, than the fun-loving comedic BFF we saw in season four, and I think it's a wiser choice. Well, I I don't want to see Donna either be all drama or all comedy. It's a question of ratios. Mm -hmm. And I've expressed my opinion, but de gustibus non est disputandum. Yeah. Well, and and Donna made it clear that she did have the memories, but she said she can't look at them because it's, you know, she can't pull them up because she says it's like looking in a furnace. Right. You know, in other words, it's too, it's, there's, there's just too much. It's too bright. It's too hot. It's too, you know. Yeah. And it did feel like this Donna was uh, an evolution of the Donna we saw, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like this was a, a natural progression of in her life and in her character. So I, she still very much had the humor. Yes. Very much so. Yep. Uh, Arnott Hill on YouTube writes, uh, in, this is in reference to our discussion of the uh, Reese swapping with the uh, Isaac Newton character. Uh, he says, uh, Hamilton, just saying. Also, there have been people of color living in Britain since Roman times, leaving Mediterranean genes in their wake. There were mixed race folk in England in 1666. Likely not Newton, I agree. Well, but that's the point. Uh, it, not mm-hmm. Newton. Um, it, and Ham, I don't have a problem with recastings, uh, you know, that involve race swaps if, if there's like an artistic reason for it. Um, like in the case with Hamilton or in the case with... Um, with um, Orson Welles's, is it Macbeth um, that he completely recast with? It's either Macbeth or Hamlet, where he completely recast it uh, with uh, African Americans and a a kind of uh, um, Caribbean 
vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, that's fine. Do a com- race swap the whole cast, you know, for an artistic reason. Um, but um, but just one character for no reason. It would be like, OK, here we're doing a historical recreation drama of of, you know, the American Revolution. And the only character that gets changed is suddenly George Washington is black. Or a woman or or, yeah. or, or woman or Chinese right. yep. or whatever. It's like this doesn't make any sense in context. There's not a, an artistic reason for it in the context of the of the presentation. It's just an arbitrary thing to do because you've done it. Right. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, Keith writes on YouTube, as I see it, the TARDIS is the bad guy in this episode. It essentially drops the doctor and Donna off in what it knows to be a dangerous situation and hightails it out of there. Realistically, if it had taken them there, hadn't taken them there at all, everything would have gone as planned and we wouldn't have even needed this episode. Well, I don't want to say anything critical of the TARDIS because I don't want it to ever take me anywhere (laughs) too unpleasant. Um, I would point out, though, that uh, number one, the TARDIS was regenerating itself. And when it regenerated, Mm -hmm. the HAD circuit came back on and it was following its programming. Also, Mm -hmm. being a time machine, it it's the TARDIS operates on multiple levels and one can argue it did take the doctor and Donna where they needed to go on this occasion. So they could become the, he could become the 15th and, doctor. Yeah. And the TARDIS was, was hurt. The TARDIS was out of control. The mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so it's, it's not like the TARDIS was in its right mind as if it ever is, but <laughs> the doctor's wife, uh, Mark Gillies, 1970 writes on YouTube. I think there is a red haired conspiracy. Kind of a joke and kind of not. Every time there's a pre-existing he, redhead, he, just he means a conspiracy against redheads. Yes, not 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 a conspiracy by redheads. Okay, <laughs> right. not that's what by redheads. That's already a that's thing. what they want you to think. <laughs> that's what they want you to think. So uh, it says every time there's a pre-existing redhead, they become a person of color when translated onto TV or movies. Mary Jane in Spider-Man is played by Zendaya. Iris West in Flash is played by Candace Patton. Barbara Gordon, Oracle in the uh, DC Comics, is played by Leslie Grace. Titiana in Marvel's She-Hulk is played by Jamila Jamil. Uh, last but not least, least, Sir Isaac Newton is played by Nathaniel Curtis. The industry has it in for gingers. Uh, there is a little evidence, by the way, against that, which is Melanie and Donna. <laughs> well, they haven't yet been race swapped. Okay. Um, the so I I don't I don't really think of Iris West as being red as being redhead. She's been portrayed different of different hair colors at different times in DC Comics, and I'm familiar with her from back before she was killed. But, you know, before they brought her back mm. and she was commonly depicted as a brunette. So I guess like a lot of women, she may change hair colors. Um, mm. But to the extent there is such a conspiracy against redheads, the people orchestrating this conspiracy better hope there's not a conspiracy by redheads. <laughs> Says the lone redhead on the on the panel. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we have a little feedback on our discussion on the Star Beast previously to Wild Beyonder. Uh, Doug's Film and TV on YouTube writes, good review of the Star Beast. I really enjoyed watching this one. My dad read the comic back in the 80s. I think Meep was a good twist villain, and I do like the Rarth Warriors. They were cool. <laughs> they were cool. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We really do love getting that and sharing it. 
We'd uh, now like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Daniel C., Candace S., Jason M., Camilla T., and Eileen C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Giggle? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, and send an email to Who at sqpn.com. Visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or leave a comment where you when you can watch us on the Secrets of, uh, Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Media. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Hellbent. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, games don't have a memory. Every game starts from scratch. <laughs> <laughs>